going to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Times that I have been preaching, we've been going through this chapter in Hebrews, and we're going to close uh, this series this morning. So we're going to start from the beginning of the chapter, and we're going to read the whole chapter of Hebrews. Again, it's Hebrews chapter 10. It says this, Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You did not desire sacrifice and offering." But you prepared a body for me. You do not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. After he says above, You do not delight, uh, desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, See, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. At the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. For if we deliberately go on sinning 
after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember the earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. God, I pray that you would help us this morning as we think upon this chapter and in this passage that we would feel the weight of sin. Pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds to be able to understand and comprehend your word. Pray that you would soften hearts. Pray that you would resuscitate dead ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Prabhu Bhutara is a man in India, and last week he was mauled by a bear. Um, Prabhu is a driver, was driving on the side of the road, and he saw a bear in the little lawn in front of him. And he left his passengers, who were warning him very sternly not to do so, in order to take a selfie with the bear. Got up close, took his camera, and the bear proceeded to do what a bear does. This morning, the author of Hebrews warns us against the bear of sin. We spent the earlier sections of the chapter packing it, unpacking what the author of Hebrews is trying to explain, that, that we are grounded on the foundation of the sacrifice of Christ. And based on that foundation, we are called to draw near to God, to hold on to the confession of our hope. And now, he is warning us, Against disobedience. So here's the main idea for this morning. Draw near, hold on, and watch out. Because eternity 
is at stake. If you want to take out those commands, you can just put in remember. Because eternity is at stake. He gives two reasons for why we need to hold on to this idea. One, because of the threat of judgment. Because of the threat of judgment. And two, because of the reward to come. Because of the reward to come. Firstly, because of the threat of judgment. Read with me in verse 26. For if we deliberately go on sinning, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The author of Hebrews says here that if you deliberately go on sinning, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. That Christ, His perfect sacrifice, His atoning work, no longer applies to those who deliberately go on sinning. Now we have to qualify this here. Go on sinning. I'd like to unpack that a little. To define it as continuous unrepentant sin. That, that when the author of Hebrews says that, that we deliberately go on sinning, he's not talking about any sin period. That if you sin against God after coming to faith, you lose your salvation until you come back to him. That's not what he's saying here. The sin is persistent. The sin invades the soul. It permeates in the life of this individual. Christians who sin do not lose their salvation. And it's impossible for Christians to lose their salvation. We talked about the perfect sacrifice of Christ. But this is talking from a different angle. So often we talk about salvation from the lens of God. That he in his sovereignty before time began predestined us. According to Ephesians, right, selected those who would come to know him. But here, the author of Hebrews is shifting our gaze from the sky to the ground. So, for those of us in local churches who profess the name of Christ, it is very well possible for members of this church and for other churches who have professed Christ in their lives to abandon him. And to fall into unrepentant sin. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. See, the reason why there isn't a sacrifice for sins is not just because of the sin itself, but also because of denying Christ. That these individuals, when they get permeated in their sins, when they persist in their sins, when they don't repent of their sins, they're actually denying the very person that they used to call master. For the author of Hebrews, unrepentant sin and the, and the denial of Christ are one and the same. That even if you claim to profess Christ... If you persist in your sin without repentance, you have denied him. The great sacrifice of Christ that we talked about in the beginning of the chapter, this perfect atoning sacrifice once and for all is gone. 
It doesn't apply. For those of us who are members of this church, or for those of us who profess Christ, do not presume upon Christ's mercy. Christ doesn't just free you from the punishments from disobedience. He frees you to be able to live in your new identity in Christ. Christ dies for hypocrites so that they don't have to be. Verse 27. There no, no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. So instead of a sacrifice for sins, you get a terrifying expectation of judgment. And this isn't a maybe. Judgment is coming. If you abandon Christ, do not think that you will still receive grace. I'm sure you've talked to people who try to rationalize away their sin. Christ still loves me. He hung out with tax collectors and drunkards. So obviously there's enough grace for me. But brothers and sisters, Christ will not be fire insurance. If you deliberately sin, if you persist in your sin, that's a clear sign of a lack of grace in your life. And he won't protect you. He will be a judge. He throws you into a lake of fire. For Christians, Christ is our sacrifice. But for those who abandon him, he will be your judge. Verse 28. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. In the Old Testament, disobedience had severe consequences. Okay, so let's turn back in our Bibles. I'd like to read you one story of an example of disobedience in the Old Testament that might help flesh out this idea. So turn with me to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. Joshua follows Deuteronomy. This is the sixth book in the Bible. So this is after God gives uh, the people of Israel commands at Mount Sinai, and now they're, they're commanded to actually enter into the promised land and, and take over the land that rightfully belongs to them. And he commands the people of Israel to, to clear house, to get rid of the Canaanites, to, to kill the people that are living there and conquer the land. And he strictly commands them not to take any of their possessions. Okay? And this is what happens in Joshua chapter 7, verse 16. Joshua got up early the next morning. He had Israel come forward tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was selected. He had the clans of Judah come forward and the Zerahite clan was selected. He had the Zerahite clan come forward by the heads of families and Zabdi was selected. They had Zabdi's family come forward man by man and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe was selected. 
So Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make a confession to him. I urge you, tell me what you have done. Don't hide anything from me. Achan replied to Joshua, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver, and a bar of gold weighing a pound and a quarter, I coveted them and took them. You can see for yourself, they are concealed in the ground inside my tent with the silver under the cloak. So Joshua sent messengers who ran to the tent. And there was a cloak concealed in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from inside the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out in the Lord's presence. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the cloak, and the bar of gold, his sons and daughters, his ox, donkey, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had, brought them up to the valley of Acre. Joshua said, Why have you brought us trouble? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So all Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies, threw stones on them, and raised over him a large pile of rocks that still remains today. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore that place is called the Valley of Acre, still today. Wow. (laughs) So Achan gets a little selfish with a huge bounty before him and decides to sneak it. And in response, not only him, his wife, his sons and daughters, all his possessions and all of his livestock get stoned, they get judged, and they get burned with the fire of a fury. But watch what the author of Hebrews does here in verse 29. Turn back. Verse 29 says this. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of of grace. It's not even that Achan's punishment was harsh, but that it's not harsh enough. It's easy for us to rationalize sin, isn't it? That we get enticed by it, seduced by it. And what the author of Hebrews says here is that when you sin, when you sin, when you deny Christ, when you love your sin more than God, you are trampling on the Son. You're regarding the blood of the covenant by which you're washed clean as useless. Dirt on your face to wash off. And that you're taking the spirit of grace and his goodness to you. And you spin its face. Spin its face. 
how much worse for those who trample the very substance of a law that Moses pointed to. Sin is not to be trifled with. When you sin, you trample the Son. You treat the blood of Jesus like it's nothing. It doesn't matter if you think, well, it doesn't hurt anyone. It's private. It does. It tramples the Son. It insults the Spirit of grace. Sin is not inconsequential. Sin is not containable. It is public and it is damaging. You cannot control the damage of sin any more than you can trap a tornado in your room. It is a travesty before God. If you're not a Christian, this is the warning that we have for you. That sin that you may love, that you may think that you have control over, actually masters you. You may think you have control, but you don't. But the good news that we have for you is that Christ relinquished his control for your sake. Don't presume upon his kindness, but trust in him. I'll elaborate more on that later. For us as a church, this means that we can't take sin lightly. This means that when members of our church are in sin and don't see the truth, that you cannot brush sin under the rug. You have to address it. You have to rebuke the brother. And if you have to go so far, you have to pronounce judgment on him. Verse 30. For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. God is a just God. He will enact judgment. Vengeance belongs to him. The author of Hebrews references here Deuteronomy 32. Okay? And, and we won't go there for the sake of time. But what Deuteronomy 32 is, is the song of Moses. So he's sitting on the top of Mount Sinai. This is before he's about to pass away. And the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land. And Moses teaches the people of Israel a song. That he's supposed to to sing, that they memorize, that they're supposed to sing to their children. And this is, again, immediately following a whole book completely dedicated to giving them instructions on how they were to live. And then he taught them a song to remember and to teach their kids on how they would fail. So if you read chapter 32... It's a bunch of different stanzas and and lyrics on how the people of Israel will forget God, abandon his law, and disobey him. And then God will enact his vengeance. He will repay. He will judge his people. Imagine learning a song like that in Sunday school as a kid. You will not trust and obey. You'll find other ways. And God will judge you. You won't trust and obey. And he's saying that God keeps his word. And he will come and judge those who fall away and deny him. 
So this also means that people who have knowledge of the truth, who know the gospel, who understand the gospel, but abandon it, will be judged with greater fury. That those who understand the gospel, the work of Christ, who know the truth cognitively, but still actively disobey them, will not just receive judgment, but worse judgment. Seems weird, doesn't it? Hell's already pretty bad. And this isn't to say that those who don't know the gospel are exempt from judgment. They will still receive judgment, but there are greater degrees of punishment. So we see this example in Matthew 11. Jesus enters the city of Bethsaida, and he pronounces judgment on the city. And he says that it will be worse for them than than it is for Sodom because they rejected the Son of God. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that it is worse for those who know Christ and abandon him, that know the gospel and abandon him. There will be greater degrees of fury, of vengeance, of judgment. He sums it up in verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. What a terrifying thing. These are not gentle hands. These are not comforting hands. These hands will make the infinity gauntlet look like a mitten. He will crush those who come into his hands of judgment. And the threat is real. Christians, do not minimize your sin. It has a great cost. Do you realize the danger of rationalizing sin? When you minimize sin, you minimize Christ. You minimize his sacrificial work for you. We ought to feel the weight of it. But don't just stop there. For us as Christians, when we hold on to the confession of our hope, the reason why we do so is because the weight of sin is matched and surpassed by the weight of grace. If you're not a Christian, you can't save yourself. Different religions or even the efforts of the world will try to convince you that you need to make yourself something. To become successful. To be a good person. And maybe you can balance out the scales. But the problem is not that the flaws aren't taken seriously. We're not just here to give you a get out of hell free card. But the issue is that your sins aren't taken seriously enough. Your imperfections are beyond repair. But the gospel is the story of a capable Savior who does what incapable humans can never do. We deserve full judgment for our sins, but Christ has died for you. He bore the wrath of God. He was crushed in the hands of the living God for your sake. And he bears the judgment and the fury of a fire. Repent and trust in him. 
as a church. This is why we need to watch out for one another. This is why the author of Hebrews commands us earlier in the chapter to watch out for one another. To not neglect the weekly gathering, to encourage each other, to provoke one another to love and good works. Because when you neglect to watch out for your brother or sister in Christ, you neglect to love them. The threat is real. Hell is on the line. Salvation is on the line. So care more about your church member's eternal state than your comfort. Amen. I mean, it's uncomfortable to address sin. Not nearly as uncomfortable as hell. It takes a very selfish motivation not to rebuke sin, based on this chapter. Because you're literally looking at a brother or sister in Christ and saying that your convenience... Or your lack of wanting to be awkward is more important than their eternal state. Do not take sin for granted. This is why we excommunicate. It is not comfortable to do that. To rebuke sin, to take it that far, to make a public statement, removing affirmation of one's salvation. That's a heavy thing. It's an uncomfortable thing. It's a bold thing. We're looking at people and telling them that based on their current life status, that they are very well on their way to hell. Can even come across as arrogant. But only if it isn't true. And it is. So we love and we excommunicate. And we watch out for one another. Second reason. Because of the reward to come. Because of the reward to come. Verse 32. Remember the earlier days. When after you had been enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. And at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. Because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. Remember your sufferings for Christ. Many of us have suffered ridicule and various forms of sacrifice for following Christ. There are those of us who have befriended the oppressed and suffering... And many of us have experienced different, various kinds of persecution. And the author of Hebrews calls us to receive such persecution, such animosity, such opposition with joy. Why? Because our possessions are not in this life. We have a coming, better, and enduring reward. We are blessed right now to live in a country that allows us to worship freely. But rest assured, America will not last. The United States will not last. Our government will not usher in a utopia. Even now, 
when our religious liberty and our ability to worship is challenged, we shouldn't lose hope. If anything, opposition to Christianity should be expected. We've been able to live in this sweet, strange, abnormal society where we've been able to worship freely. Which means that our hope doesn't oscillate with a political climate. It's anchored in Christ. We don't expect rewards in this life. We expect a greater, enduring possession. Paul says that this light, temporary affliction is prepared for us an eternal weight of glory. Verse 35. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away the promise. The author of Hebrews is saying, look at how much you've given up already. Don't give up now. Reward is coming. It's coming soon. Endurance doesn't come from just resisting sin. If I ended this sermon at verse 31, that would be but one motivator. But it's not the only one. Endurance doesn't come just from feeling the licks of the fire and preventing judgment. But it comes from actively trusting in the greater reward. That for us who suffer in this life, we have the promise of a greater reward. See, Christians are not trying to be monks who detach themselves from pleasure. That's not what we try to do. We are not masochists. We seek the best thing for ourselves. It's not about forsaking rewards or giving up rewards. It's about seizing an infinitely better one. And this is where false teachers that teach a prosperity gospel get it wrong. They teach that you can exchange, or this is what they functionally do, they exchange eternal gifts for present lesser ones. That as though the promises of Scripture is that you can get wealth now, that you can get prosperity now, get health now, get your best life now. And all the while, they're actually deceiving you to exchange an eternal possession for a temporary one. Shilin says it well. If your best life is now, then you're headed for hell. Hold on to hope, brothers and sisters. Reward is coming. Many of us are tired. Many of us are war-torn from long-suffering. The world can be cruel It might feel like God has abandoned you or that he's judging you. Hold on. You have a better, enduring possession awaiting you. And the best comforts of this life cannot even begin to compare with the reward that's going to come. Hold on. Verse 36. For you need endurance. So that after 
you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. You will receive your reward after you have done God's will. And to do God's will takes endurance. The Christian life brings gratification, but not instant gratification. We will receive rewards for doing God's will. And this is different from justification, okay? This is different from just being saved from our sins. In the same way that hell will have greater degrees of punishment, in heaven, there will be greater degrees of reward. Now, I'm not talking about entrance into heaven. But there are rewards for obedience, for faithfulness. You can see that in the parable of the talents, that those who have been faithful will breed greater reward. Greater faithfulness breeds greater rewards. So don't throw away your confidence. It's going to bring you a great bounty. God always gives a great return on investment. Verse 37. For yet, in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one, will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. You know, us humans, we don't see the timeline of existence. So we don't know the exact time that Christ is coming. But rest assured, he is coming quicker than you think. You know, we're like the impatient children in the back of the car, keep asking the parents, are we there yet? Because we want to be there now. But we need to trust God. We might not see, but we can trust the one who does. And he said, he's coming soon, which means that he is. He will not delay. Have faith. In the meantime, grow in endurance. And bear greater rewards. But for those who doubt and draw back, God has no pleasure in them. You can't say that you weren't sure and wanted to play it safe. Those who bury their talents into the ground without investing it will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 39. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed but those who have faith and are saved. You are not those who have drawn back, brothers and sisters. You have faith and you have been saved. And God promises you the rewards of salvation. There is a magnificent reward waiting for you. So don't draw back. Draw ever nearer to the Lord. And don't fall back. But hold on to the hope that we have. And watch out for brothers and sisters who may be near to falling and exhort them. And encourage them to hold on. Can you see the full picture that the author of Hebrews is painting here? That we went over in the past three sermons. He begins chapter 10 with the assurance of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And he uses that steady foundation to build his commands, to draw near to God, to approach him, to hold on to the confession of the hope 
that we have. And to watch out for one another. And he closes the chapter by focusing our attention ahead. There's a terrifying judgment for those of us who lose our grip and fall into God's hands of judgment. But there is an eternal, magnificent prize for those who do hold on. And because of what Christ has done, we can draw near, hold on, and watch out now because of what is coming. Can you see that? Let me repeat that. Because of what Christ has done, we can draw near, hold on, and watch out now because of what is coming. Desiring God tells a story of Hugh Latimer, um, pastor, preacher in England. And on October 16th, 1555, he had spent 18 months in a tower cell because um, after King Henry dies, his daughter Mary comes to the throne, the Mary that we call Bloody Mary. She's a Catholic and begins to slaughter Protestants for their faith in the gospel. And Desiring God tells this story, that after spending 18 months in a tower cell, Latimer and Ridley met at an Oxford stake. With Latimer in a frock and cap, and Ridley in his bishop's gown, the two men walked together and prayed together before a smith lashed them to the wood. Ridley was the first to strengthen his friend. Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. As a bundle of sticks caught fire beneath them, Latimer had his turn. Raising his voice so Ridley could hear, he cried, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Three years later, Mary I died and passed the kingdom to her half-sister Elizabeth, a Protestant queen. And Latimer and Ridley's candle burst into a torch. And Latimer and Ridley rejoice in the rewards in heaven right now. The fury of the flames of this life could not hold them. They held on. And brothers and sisters, hold on to the faith that we have. Lord, pray that we would be sober-minded. Help us to remember the threats of hell. Help us, protect us from being deceived by the lies of Satan. And help us to hold on to our confession, to look forward to the greater reward to come. And we thank you that we can trust in the work of your son. Thank you for sending Christ, that we can be anchored in him. In Jesus' name, amen.